and welcome to Small Town Mysteries, a show where three longtime friends from Massachusetts tell crazy and heartbreaking true stories filled with the extra flair of small town mystery. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our next episode on Susan Powell. But before we get into that, I'm going to toss it over to Rachel, who's highlighting our missing person for this week. Rach? Thank you so much, Kate. So today I'm covering Giovanno and Armando Mustada. I think they're brothers. But as we know and we've talked about before, there's like no information on these people anymore. Um, So it's kind of hard to get all the details. Armando and Giovanno were last seen on November 4th, 2023 in Nashville, Tennessee. Giovanno is 13 and Armando is 15 and they are both male. And that's about all the information I have. If you have any tips or information about where Giovanno or Armando may be, you can contact the Nashville Metro Police Department, Tennessee at 1615-862-8600. Thank you, Rachel. We'll have that information on our Instagram account at Small Town Mysteries Pod. So if you live in that area, please check that out. Hopefully those two are located safely. And now over to Christine. I feel like the way I just said that felt very like newscaster. And you did that recently, too. I don't know. I feel like I'm inching closer and closer towards sounding like a newscaster the more we do this podcast. Oh, well. Anyway, Christine. Hi. Hello. This week, we are covering another listener suggestion. This one is from Kylie. Thanks, Kylie. She told us that we should look into the Powell case, which is what I'm covering. She was like, I'm not sure if the 50,000 population is considered a small town, but I'm sure that won't be a problem. So she definitely listens. I love that. Susan Marie Powell, born October 16th, 1981, is a missing person from West Valley City, Utah, who disappeared in 2009 at the age of 28. You know, it's a city. Moving on. Her presumed murder, as well as the subsequent investigation and events, garnered national media attention. Susan Powell was the third daughter of Charles and Judy Cox, and she was born in New Mexico lived in Alaska until her family settled in Washington state. It's kind of all over. Yeah, I know. Alaska, I feel like, is a pretty... I don't know. When I hear someone has lived or is from Alaska, I just am automatically like, ooh. (laughs) Either you're related to Sarah Palin or you have a relative in the military. Maybe. Or you just like Alaska. So she was very outgoing, optimistic. People who knew Susan described her as really friendly and always just trying to uplift those around her. Susan ended up meeting her eventual husband, Joshua Powell, during a dinner party at his apartment in Tacoma, Washington in November of 2000. He was a classmate in the LDS Church Institute of Religion course. They were both Mormons. They started a relationship soon after meeting, and they married soon after in April of 2001. So it was like really fast, about five months from when they met to married. And from what I read, he proposed like a week after meeting her. So very fast. Yeah. Dang. In college, I had a friend who was a former Mormon, and she explained all like the ring by spring stuff to me. And um, I could be honest, I it's a little horrifying. But that also is coming from a 26-year-old single woman. But I can't imagine meeting someone and being engaged within a week and then, like, marrying them five months later. Like, I feel like you don't even really know them at that point. But I can't judge. 
it's not my life. And if she was happy, then she's happy. That's true. But I, at the same time, I feel like that's just like setting you up for like the thriller where you find out that, oh, you married a serial killer or something. Is that where this is going? <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. Okay. Okay. It, everything will. I don't want to predict anything. You'll hear soon enough. Okay. Because as soon as I said, as long as she's happy, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I definitely think like. You hear about a lot of people who are like, oh, we met and two weeks later got engaged and it's been perfect. We've been married for 50 years, whatever. But I feel like at that point, you're just taking a gamble either way and it could go right or it could go very wrong. Because like you said, you don't truly know the person after that short of a time. I also just feel like you need to like live with someone to know them. I feel pretty strongly about that too. And I think you need to like experience some up and downs Mm-hmm. You know, and at like the five months month phase, you're not really experiencing any downs yet. No, that's still the honeymoon phase for a lot yeah. of like, especially long term couples. Like five months in, you haven't had any substantial arguments yet. Like, no, <laughs> no. especially like when you look at people who have been married for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in the grand scheme of thing, not six months or whatever, five months, that's nothing. Yeah. Okay. So minor alarm bells. Right. Like that. Wee-woo. Wee-woo. <laughs> so for a short period following their wedding, Joshua and Susan lived at Stephen Powell's home in South Hill, Washington. That was Susan's father-in-law and Joshua's father. So during this time, Susan's father-in-law, Stephen, developed an obsessive infatuation with her. He followed her around the house with a camcorder He used a small mirror to spy on her while she used the bathroom, stole her underwear from laundry, read her journals, and posted love songs online under a pseudonym. Okay, so when you said, like, he became infatuated with her, I was like, okay, like, that, Mm. I feel like, terminology-wise, could still be relatively innocent. Then you're like, yeah, he used a mirror to spy on her. I'm like, okay, no, never mind. (laughs) I don't feel like that word can be innocent. And that, like, infatuated? No. Okay, yeah, okay. The term infatuation, I will say, does give rise to some indication of problem. But I still had hope. I like to be an optimist. I was hopeful that maybe this guy wasn't a total creep. And I was wrong. That's such an awkward position to be put into. Especially, yeah, when you live with your grandma and, yeah. And also, I'm assuming they were living with them because financially they couldn't afford to not live with them. And it's like, how much of a choice do you have? Ooh, ooh, I don't like this at all. In 2003, Stephen confessed his feelings to Susan, who rejected him. And, like, that was kind of the first she even knew about it. So she was shocked rightfully so the encounter was inadvertently captured by steven's camcorder microphone and soon after that the powells moved out of state in a large part because susan wanted to distance herself from her father-in-law yes that makes sense before you move on i really wish that you guys could see our faces because literally me and Kate have just been sitting here for the past like two minutes with our mouths on the floor. Yeah, no, we are like, the only word I can think of is aghast. Yeah, it's a very awkward, disgusting position. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit nauseous. I'm a little nauseous too. I'm looking at my coffee that I just made and I'm thinking, "Mm, I'm not sure I want that right now. (laughs) So at this point, Susan's journal entries and email correspondence did indicate the presence of marital discord as well. 
There was tension with Joshua over his refusal to attend church services with his family and also over his continued contact with Stephen, despite his father's like continued and ongoing advances towards Susan. Susan's friends also mentioned his extremely controlling behavior toward his wife and his extravagant spending habits. He did file for bankruptcy in 2007, declaring over $200,000 in debt. In July of 2008, Susan recorded a video showing property damage that she attributed to Joshua, and she wrote a secret will that included the statements, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, and also the statement, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Holy shit. That's like something straight out of like a Lifetime movie. That's crazy. I think I've heard this case before. I wouldn't be surprised. It's pretty, it was pretty covered. It's an incredibly brave thing to do to know Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm in a situation where it may be less safe for me to leave. That's, you know, when you think of battered women, the majority of them that are killed are killed because they are trying to leave. It's not always the safest option. And to recognize that she needs to stay, but also have that safeguard that's like, I'm in an unsafe situation, and if I die, this is, like, what's been going on with my life, and, like, this needs to be looked into. That's incredible. I'm very impressed by that. So I'm just going to do a little bit of background on uh, Joshua Powell, just so you're aware. He was born in 1976 to Stephen and Terika Powell in Washington State. His parents did not have a good marriage did not have a good marriage caused by Stephen, his dad's violent abuse of his family and his father's negative feelings toward the LDS church. According to divorce filings by Terika in 1992, Stephen shared pornography with Joshua and his two brothers, which is disgusting, and refused to teach or enforce limits on certain behaviors. As a teenager, Joshua allegedly killed gerbils belonging to one of his sisters and threatened his mother with a knife as well as attempted suicide on at least one occasion. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is your classic, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, there were were many red flags here. So this kid is showing early signs of being a violent human being Mm -hmm. a dangerous person a sociopath and he's being raised by a father who refuses to hold him accountable for this yeah that is such a scary combination Mm -hmm. this man is dangerous so by the late 1990s he was living in seattle as a student at the university of washington And during his time at college, Joshua began a relationship with a woman named Catherine Terry Everett. After the two moved into an apartment together, he became very possessive toward Everett. She later recalled he refused to allow her to visit her family by herself and stated, quote, he would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. When Everett visited a friend in Utah without Joshua, she decided not to return to Seattle, and she broke it up with him over the phone. So she never returned. She was like, I'm done. Which I think speaks to how scared she might have been of him if she literally, like, visited a friend and decided never to move back. Like, that yeah. speaks volumes. That was her way of getting out. 
Right. Yeah. Now I'm going to talk about the disappearance uh, with all of that background. So on the morning of December 6th, 2009, Susan, Charles, and Brayden, her two kids and his two kids, attended church services. A neighbor visited them at home in the afternoon, leaving at about 5 p.m., and this was the last time Susan was seen. At first, relatives reported the entire Powell family missing on December 7th. Joshua's mother, Terika, and his sister, Jennifer, went looking for them at their house after being informed that the children had not been dropped off at daycare that day. They called the police after failing to make contact with Joshua or Susan. The police broke into the house, and they were concerned that the family members were victims of carbon monoxide poisoning, but no one was found inside. However, they did notice two box fans blowing at a wet spot on the couch. Susan did not show up at her job that day, and her purse, wallet, and identification were all found at the house. Her cell phone was later found in the family's only vehicle, a minivan that Joshua had been using. Later that day, at about 5 p.m., Joshua returned home with the two boys and was taken to the police station for questioning. He claimed he had left Susan sleeping at home shortly after midnight on December 7th, and he had taken the boys on a camping trip to Simpson Springs in western Utah. Police visited the location on December 10th, but found no evidence of the campsite that Joshua had described. They also found it suspicious that Joshua would take his young boys out camping in blizzard conditions after midnight when they were scheduled to go to daycare just hours later. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's not even a red flag. That's like a, a red flare. And then on top of that, Joshua had also not informed his boss that he would not be coming into work that day, and he told police it was because he had thought it was Sunday instead of Monday. No. Mm, Yeah. All right. And as for the investigation, upon searching the Powell residence on December 9th, traces of Susan's blood were found on the floor, as well as life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million dollars. There There it is. There's the life insurance policy. There was also a handwritten letter from from Susan expressing fear for her life. DNA test results released in 2013 matched one blood sample with Susan, while another sample was determined to have come from an unknown male contributor. Documents were also released in 2012 showing that Joshua took actions that were regarded as highly suspicious following her disappearance, He liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions, and he withdrew his children from daycare. He had also previously spoken to co-workers about how to hide a body in an abandoned mineshaft in the western Utah desert. No, I'm sorry. What the hell? Why? Why? Just imagine you're you're standing around the water cooler. (laughs) Got your little Dixie cups with the 90s, like, blue and purple pattern on them, and you're drinking a little water. Yeah, you know, Mad Men was good last night. Yeah, can't wait for next week. Just see what Don Draper's up to, you know? You guys ever uh, had a body in a mineshaft? Like, uh, what? <laughs> I I honestly don't know if it's worse than Googling. Like, it's pretty bad. <laughs> but I thought about it. And at first I was like, oh, it's definitely worse. But I don't know. Google, you have a, there's history You can there. prove it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tangible. You can argue if it's right. just somebody claims that. Yeah, did the coworkers come forward? Like, at what point did the coworkers come forward with this information? Were they just questioned in like due time, or like did they 
actively come forward and they're like, uh, my coworker talked about murder and it freaked me out. I have questions. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't find anything that said either way, but it seems like from what I read that it was more so after, like when they yeah. started investigating, I don't think anyone came before and talked to the police. So police interviewed the couple's elder son, Charlie, who confirmed that the camping trip Joshua described did take place, but he did say that Susan went with them and she did not return. Weeks after her disappearance, a teacher reported Charlie had claimed that his mother was dead. And furthermore, Susan's parents said that while at daycare a few months after the disappearance, Brayden, her other son, drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told workers, quote, mommy was in the trunk. Oh my gosh. Horrifying. Traumatizing this poor child. Yeah, I don't have words for that. Investigators informed the media that they planned to question Joshua again and subpoenaed all footage and interviews, both aired and unaired, of him from local stations. On December 14th, he got an attorney and police said he started to become more uncooperative with the investigation. A few days later, he took his sons to Pwilap. I don't know how to say that to stay with Stephen for the holidays. And by December 24th, he was considered a person of interest in the case. On January 6th, 2010, he returned with his brother Michael to pack the family's belongings, and he moved to Poil Up permanently. If anyone um, who listens to this is from that area and wants to DM us with how to say that, I literally have no idea. Yeah. We do get like DMs and comments correcting our pronunciation, and um, I love it. Just throwing that out there. I had one on our Instagram account that I was like super grateful for. And the guy was like, oh, I hope you like didn't take this the wrong way. I was like, no, like, thank you. <laughs> like, we need we, we don't know how to pronounce these places. So anyway, if you know how to pronounce that, hit us up. I quickly Googled that it. it said Puyallup. But uh, let me know if that's accurate, because I feel like that sounds. Is there an argument to be made that we should call it? whatever you were calling it before because i don't like the second pronunciation is that, <laughs> is that okay just, yeah <laughs> thank you so in puyallup joshua stayed in a house with his two sons his father stephen his brothers michael and jonathan and his sister alina soon afterwards the website susanpowell.org was launched it was described as the official website of susan powell and the site's anonymous entries defended joshua as the victim of a smear campaign by susan's family they also said that he was a victim of his estranged sister jennifer who was kind of um out at the time about her family's uh turmoil and their history and she was suspicious of joshua and he also spoke out about the mormon church Additional posts speculated that Susan's disappearance was connected to that of Stephen Kosher, a journalist who vanished the same week as Susan, and insinuating that the two had run off to Brazil together. It is widely believed that Joshua and Stephen wrote these posts. Brazil feels random. It does feel random. I'm like, why Brazil? In late 2010, both claimed that Susan had abandoned her family due to mental illness and that she had left with another man. 
Investigators soon started to suspect Stephen, as well as Joshua, after learning from a family friend about his obsession with Susan. Computer images seized from his house in 2010 turned up 4,500 images of Susan taken without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. Oh my freaking god. Oh. Mm -hmm. Oh gag. Police also turned their attention to Michael after learning that he had sold his broken down car to a wrecking yard in Oregon after Susan's disappearance and had later ordered satellite images of the lot. When police found the car, a cadaver dog indicated that decomposing human remains had been in the trunk, but DNA tests proved inconclusive. On September 14, 2011, authorities discovered a possible gravesite while searching Topaz Mountain, a desert area near Nephi, Utah, which Joshua had visited often. There were signs of recent soil disturbance and shoveling, but after digging a few feet down, police were unable to find any remains. On September 22, 2011, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography after police found evidence that he had secretly videotaped numerous women and young girls, including Susan. Uh, Ew. Scum. Just a trash human. Susan's father filed for custody of the children the day after Stephen was arrested. The Washington court granted him temporary custody of the boys, ruling that Joshua would have to move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to regain custody of his kids. In late September 2011, Joshua's sister Jennifer stated that she believed Joshua was responsible for Susan's disappearance. By this time, West Valley City had spent more than half a million dollars on the case, and Mayor Mike Winder indicated that he felt the case was worth it, saying, quote, We feel that we're getting to the tipping point where we have more hot evidence than we have had in the past two years, and he just said the case was moving forward. In late 2011, Joshua underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington. They determined that he had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record of domestic violence. But the examiner did raise issues concerning the ongoing criminal investigation, his failure to admit normal personal shortcomings, his overbearing behavior with his sons, and his persistent defensiveness and paranoia. And the recommendation from this was that he have visitation with his sons several times a week supervised by a social worker. In the last week of January 2012, Utah police discovered 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on a computer seized from the Powell family Oh my family god, home. this is fucking nasty. The images were, I guess, not illegal due to them being a hand-drawn or cartoonish 3D format. I don't know what the, like, situation Ew. there is with that. Still. But they were cause of great concern to the examiner, Yeah, that obviously. is, uh, no. Yeah. Drawings, picture, whatever. Yeah. Messed up. I did hear in other sources, too, that these were later proved to not even necessarily, like, it was a borrowed computer, so... People seem to say that it was proved after that the images weren't even from that family. Like, it was the family before them or something. Uh, um, so I'm, like, not yeah, really Yeah, but at sure the same that. time, his father had a history with this stuff. 
and it wouldn't be surprising if he passed yeah. it on to him to be honest so it's right, like yeah so meanwhile michael established a google sites page claiming that susan's parents were abusing and neglecting the boys and that west valley city police had both mishandled the investigation into her disappearance and were harassing joshua google removed the site after a few days due to violations of its terms and use so like all of joshua's family except except i guess jennifer and maybe his other sister we're just really trying to make Susan's family look bad and make it look like Susan was just a neglectful mother who left her kids, which is crazy. On February 5th, 2012, 911 received a really distressed phone call from social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall, who had taken Charlie and Brayden to a supervised visit at Joshua's house. Hall, who was supposed to monitor the visit between Joshua and the boys, reported that Joshua had grabbed the boys and would not let her through the door, so he locked her outside. And soon thereafter, the house exploded, killing Joshua and his two children. Yeah, I, what? I know this case. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's not where I expected no, that to go at all. No, it's absolutely crazy. And it's like, Christine, did you listen to the, um, when she, when the social worker calls the police? Did you listen to that? Oh, my God. I think it was on Morbid. They played it. It was on Morbid, They played it, and um, I don't want to talk shit, and I don't really know, obviously. I have never worked for 911 as an operator or anything, but the person did nothing. Like, it was definitely, it could have been handled much better. Um, So if you guys are curious, Mm. you can listen to that, but it's kind of frustrating because they didn't, like, believe her. Local authorities treated the case as a double murder-suicide, saying that the act seemed deliberate. When authorities notified Stephen, who was in jail, he didn't seem very upset, but was angry toward authorities who notified him. Two weeks later, Stephen invoked his Fifth Amendment right to not answer questions about her disappearance, about Susan's disappearance, and a lot of people, including Susan's family, believe that Stephen knew what actually happened to her. After a pretty brief investigation, officials did confirm the explosion was deliberate. The official cause of death for Joshua and the two boys was carbon monoxide poisoning, though the coroner also noted that both children had significant chopping injuries on the head and neck. I think this is horrible. This is like the worst. Oh my god. A hatchet was recovered near Joshua's body, and investigators believe that he used the tool to attack the boys before being overwhelmed by smoke and fumes. So he couldn't just poison them. He had to pile on. That's disgusting. Not that there's reasoning. Obviously, there's not reasoning for this, but maybe in his head it was like, it's a slow and painful death. Like, smoke inhalation. Um, so maybe he was just trying to make it quick. Not like, obviously that's fucked up, but I don't know. The investigation did find two five gallon cans of gasoline on the property, as well as evidence that it had been spread throughout the house. Friends and relatives of Joshua told authorities that he had contacted them by email minutes before the incident to essentially say goodbye. His local bishop received instructions for finding his money and shutting off his utilities. Joshua had also withdrawn 7000 from his bank account and had donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before the murder. 
His brother, Michael, was named main beneficiary of his life insurance policy. On February 11th, 2013, about a year after the death of Joshua and his sons, Michael Powell killed himself by jumping from the roof of a parking garage in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he had moved for graduate school. Wow. So clearly he had something weighing on him. Yeah, I think that's probably what it was. Police had questioned him several times in 2012 after they had discovered his car at the Oregon wrecking yard, and police did describe him as evasive as to why he left the car at that location. Utah authorities have since stated that they believe Joshua and Michael were accomplices in Susan's murder. In a February 2013 interview, the examiner who conducted the 2011 and 12 evaluations of Joshua for Washington authorities did acknowledge that he was suspicious with Joshua's involvement in Susan's disappearance, but they weren't mentioned in his report because that was obviously beyond the scope of his duties and, you know, you can't really comment on that. On May 21st, 2013, West Valley City Police announced that they had closed the active investigation into Susan's disappearance. Police just stated that they believe Joshua murdered Susan and had assistance from his brother Michael in concealing her body. Since then, there have been repeated attempts to have Susan legally declared dead. Joshua's sister Jennifer wrote a memoir with co-author Emily Clausen about her family's tumultuous history. It is called A Light in Dark Places. She was inspired to write this book to, quote, help other people recognize abuse in either their own relationships or relationships around them because it's not always completely apparent. Stephen Powell was released from prison on July 11th, 2017, after serving a total of seven years for his voyeurism and child pornography convictions. Gross. Let him rot. He did die of natural causes in Tacoma, Washington, about only a year later on July 23rd. Bye, bitch. I know, but bye. Yes, thank gosh he's not here anymore because clearly he was not a great person. But at the same time, it pisses me off that he got to die of natural causes. And like, look how these boys died. Also that he's probably one of the only people who knew the truth. That who was, was involved in it. Yeah, because Michael had already committed suicide at that point so he was one of the only other people and then it might have just been steven that's so it. he took yeah so he took it to the grave so the thing is yeah we're never gonna know the picture below is just of susan's dad and her mom and the two kids mm, they're so freaking cute they look so happy i know in march 2015 chuck cox susan's dad won a court battle with Terika and Alina Powell over control of Susan's estate. Terika and Alina had sought to have Susan declared legally dead to collect life insurance. The Cox family also sued Washington's Department of Social and Health Services and its social workers, claiming that the agency prioritized Joshua's parental rights over the safety of the boys and facilitated their deaths. I Sorry, I feel like this is really tough because... That social worker that witnessed that, there's no way Mm -hmm. she's the same person anymore. And she was also just doing her job. She was. She was doing her job. Like, she doesn't have control over... No. She was just... Following out what she signed up to do. Like, that's basically it. It's not like she was the one that said, this man deserves rights to his children. I feel like it would keep me up at night. Like, I would just keep playing that over and over again. Yeah, it'd be horrible. 
In 2015, a federal court granted summary judgment to the defendants, ruling that the social workers had immunity and DSHS was not negligent. And from my limited understanding of summary or summary judgment, it's it's essentially summary. Okay, good. It's basically when the court determines the case doesn't really need to go to trial due to limited evidence. Like they already know the outcome, what it's going to be, so they just don't have a full trial. And yeah. then I said, is yep. that semi-accurate, Kate? <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, that's okay. pretty on the nose. No, you, you got it completely. Okay. Cool. So despite that, in 2019, an appeals court partially overturned that decision, ruling that the social workers did have immunity, but the question of DSHS's negligence could proceed to trial. Recently, in 2023, a jury ruled that DSHS was negligent and they awarded $98 million to the estates of Susan's two sons. Good. I know. That's a big, that's a big amount. So who, who got that money then? So I'm assuming that would go to her it would go parents. To, yeah, it would go to her parents. Okay. So Susan's family also pressured state lawmakers in Washington and Utah to pass bills that would restrict or block visitation rights for parents being investigated for murder. I love this. Honestly, good for these people that they were able to even do anything after this. Because this is such a heartbreaking scenario and that they could channel that anger into justice. Like, hell yeah. I did find in a pretty reliable source, like very recently this happened, that the judge presiding over the case had since reduced the reward to $32 million, So it would be $16 million for Charlie and then $16 million for the other grandson, Brayden. And I did see the Cox family attorney was going to appeal the court's decision to reduce the jury verdict. Does this happen a lot? Do you know, Kate, where they like reduce it after the jury? Yeah, there's remitter, which is when a jury award is so excessive that it's considered to be a gross miscarriage of justice. So that would explain why there would be potentially ongoing litigation about the damages, because that is a really big award of damages. So that would make sense that there could be a suit to be like, hey, that's insane. And then the court might be like, yeah, we'll still give them a lot, but not that much. Yeah, that's a thing. And there's also additor, which is the same thing, but is only in state court, which is um, if the damages are too low. Okay. They can be like overturned and... And it can be adjusted. Hmm. So Susan's father states that the civil suit victory was just a start, saying, quote, the state and DHS still refused to admit that they were negligent, that they were incompetent in what they were doing. He says it's hard to imagine a change will take place if they can't admit they did something wrong in the first place. He also said that he and his wife were planning on starting a foundation with a portion of the money awarded. That would be aimed at helping victims and their families. He wants to create a group of vetted attorneys, people he trusts so he can pass on to those in need. While he admits this wouldn't have helped save his daughter or her two young sons, he believes it will have the ability to help others for years to come. And I put this in because I feel like we've mentioned it on the pod before, but when her dad was asked if this long, drawn-out legal process re-victimizes victims, he says that the first few times it's grueling, but he does realize that it's a part of the process and he says it's worth the struggle. Susan is still technically listed as missing, even though it seems pretty apparent what happened to her, who happened to her, and her children. 
And then just the last couple things, if you want to check out more info about this case, like Rachel mentioned, Morbid covered it. A lot of other podcasts have covered it as well. And then a documentary titled The Disappearance of Susan Cox Powell premiered on Oxygen in May of 2019. It was a two-night special, and it revealed Stephen Powell's never-before-seen videos that were seized by police when he was arrested. It also included interviews with many who had not spoken out publicly before, including Joshua Powell's sister, Alina. And then this is a super well-known one. I've heard great things from not not like firsthand people, but anytime I went online, a lot of people were like, I listened to the cold podcast. Um, like it was so great, very informative. So Dave Crawley, a reporter for KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, began a podcast on the Susan Powell case in November 2018. It's just titled Cold. And it offers evidence and information from the case that had never before been made public, such as voice and video recordings, interviews, and more. I know a lot of people, like I said, have checked this out. Highly recommend it. So if you're interested in this case, I would definitely check it out for more in-depth analysis and then for those recordings as well. And that's my case. Thank you, Christine. What a devastating case. You covered it beautifully. Yeah. For what it's worth. I at first just thought it was going to be Susan's case and it was sad to discover that they're like her children too. Right. Yeah, this is just a tragic. At least let's hope that something like this doesn't happen again and there are steps made cuz this is definitely one of those cases that you that I feel like is pretty well known and is enough to kind of make change. Mhm. At least I hope, you know. Yeah, especially if they're able to look back and say, you know, Christine, you mentioned that they're able to say, you know, maybe we prioritized his parental rights too much over the welfare of the kids. And like, if they're able to make reflections like that, that, you know, like they did err and those errors, you know, were consequential in what happened, that means at least there's room to potentially improve, you know, like you have to recognize that you've done something incorrectly to correct it so that has me hopeful that there's at least recognition that there might have been some missteps in how this was all handled mm-hmm. but wow you're you are upholding your reputation as yep. the heartbreaker of the podcast because i feel like i need to go lie down i also i also want to add because i was like looking it up because when i was talking about the 911 operator mm-hmm. i'm on reddit so obviously take this with like a grain of salt, but he was reprimanded for it. I think I read somewhere that it took him like something like seven minutes to send help or something like that. I'm going to send it to you guys because I want you to listen to it because I remember I listened to this and I was like, how does this man have a job? But okay, so the guy, he, he was reprimanded, but he wasn't fired. He received a formal reprimand, acknowledged his mistake, and now trains other responders about the dangers of something he calls compassion fatigue. Mm. Mm. So at least something good came out of that, too. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I have heard. It's better than him just losing his job. I have heard of that, though. Like. Compassion fatigue. mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. First off, it takes a certain person to be able to do that. Yeah. Yes. And then on top of that, like, they hear calls every day. Right. And so eventually they're going to kind of be desensitized to them. Okay. Well, I guess that wraps up this week's episode of Small Town Mysteries. 
we are found on Instagram at Small Town Mysteries Pod. If you live in a small town that has a weird case and you think we should check it out, DM us. We love to hear from you, even if you don't live in a small town, but you know of a weird case that may or may not take place in a small town because, you know, as mentioned, we're pretty fast and loose with the uh, definition of small town. <laughs> At this point in the podcast, uh, where I mean, we're about like 18 months of having a podcast. We're going to run out of small towns eventually. So hit us up uh, with your suggestions. We love it. We love to hear it. Uh, I think we're going to have two more episodes and then we're going to take a little break for the holidays. Mm -hmm. So um, sorry to disappoint, but (laughs) sometimes a little time off is necessary for us. So I'm sure um, you guys mm -hmm. will be busy, too. Yeah, you'll be so busy yeah. you won't even miss us because you won't be thinking about, oh, my podcast. You'll be like trimming the tree or whatever. So at Small Time Mysteries Pod, hit us up. We really appreciate the uh, involvement from listeners lately has been incredible. Really reaffirms that we're doing something that people enjoy. Makes me happy. So thank you. We love you guys so much. Yes. Yes, we do. I'm getting a little emotional. Rachel's going to cry. All right. All right um, <laughs> we got to go before Rachel starts crying because it's going to get ugly. All right. Yeah, no one wants that. We'll see you next week. Come spiral with us next week. Bye. Bye.